that's all the announcements I have to make right now, so let's pray together. Lord, we're glad to be here. We could be anywhere in the world right now, but we're here. And you have a word for us. Lord, I pray that this word would bless us, that it would help us, that it would convict us. God, right now I pray for our leaders, for our president, for our governor, for our mayor, and all of our local leaders. God, help them to do your will. Help them to do their jobs well. They need your help, God. And I pray for those serving in the military, our police officers, our firefighters, our EMS, all of the people behind the scenes keeping us safe. God, we're so grateful for them. Help us not to forget the service they do. And Lord, right now, as I bring this word, I pray that you will protect my mouth from error. Lord, if there's something you don't want me to say, keep it from saying it. I pray that these words will be profitable for everyone who hears them today and help us with the attention span to focus right now. In your name, amen. Abandonment. Abandonment is a nasty word. Humans were not created to face abandonment, rather flourishing. God created them to flourish but just like every other issue in our fallen and sinful world, abandonment is a direct result of sin. And a key character in our passage today is a man who faced earthly abandonment in his life, King David of Israel. Let me quickly catch you up to speed on David's life. He rose to fame and fell into abandonment. And the book of 1 Samuel highlights David's life. Beginning in 1 Samuel 16 with the prophet Samuel anointing David when David becoming King Saul's musician and King Saul loving him. That's a really big deal. Basically, David became Saul's right-hand man. Then in 1 Samuel 17, David slays Goliath. Many of us know that Sunday school story. David is a big deal. Working for the king, loved by the king, embraced by the king and all his people. But the story fell apart for David and Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 18. David came back from slaying Goliath, defeating the Philistines, and he was paraded around the towns of Israel, people coming outside, cheering and shouting as he drove by. Think kind of like the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, except it ran through the whole country of Israel. Here's the point. David is a big deal. And so often when we have success, Sometimes others, sadly even Christians, seek to tear us down out of jealousy. And that's exactly what is about to happen to David. We see it First 1 Samuel 18, 7 through 9. This was the context of what was happening. The women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me, they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? 
and Saul eyed David from that day on. David was probably riding on cloud nine. People were praising him. He left the sheep herder. He came home a war hero. And he was famous throughout the country of Israel. But things were not as David thought. Saul tried to kill David multiple times after that. He convinced David to marry his daughter just because he thought it would distract David from fighting well and there'd be a chance he would get killed in battle. It's pretty conceited. The truth is, David had been all but abandoned by Saul. Saul was actively trying to kill him out of jealousy. And that's the frame of reference for our message today. That's the world we're stepping into right now. David, crying out to God in Psalm 16. And from a quick recap of the early years of David's life, it's abundantly clear he faced abandonment. And from someone he trusted his life with. The psalm is titled, You Will Not Abandon My Soul. And a key point we have to look at immediately is that title, David is confident that God will not abandon our soul. What is our soul? Some would say it's the essential you. It's you at your core when you strip back flesh and blood. It's something deeper. And David tells us in this psalm that God cares for our souls. Let's read and learn from God's word together right now. Psalm 16, verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. David immediately asks for God to preserve him. It's the same Hebrew word used two other times in the Psalms, and it's always used regarding keeping oneself out of harm's way from bad people, from people like King Saul. David does not say, God, please kill Saul and get rid of all my problems. He does not ask God for an easy life, but rather for strength when he faces inevitable challenges. I need to ask you, what kind of prayers do you pray? Are you praying to a holy vending machine? punching in some buttons and asking God to solve all your problems? Or do you pray like David? Do you ask God for longevity, strength, perseverance to get through hard things in life? Are you a Christian for the long haul or as long as it's convenient to your lifestyle? Or as long as God keeps your bank account full and keeps your life hashtag blessed? Verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Verse 2 tells us there's no good apart from God. I think it would be dangerous to jump to a fatalistic mindset thinking that everything is bad, that work is bad, that money is bad, that sex is bad. That, that can be true in certain situations. But Proverbs 16.3 tells us that work committed to the Lord is blessed by God. And Proverbs 13.22 tells us that leaving an inheritance for one's children is good. And in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul describes sex within the realms of marriage as good, even commanding husbands and wives to not deprive one another of sex. But the problem is, 
Christians at times are prone to fall into a mindset that everything is bad or evil. But Paul would say the contrary in 1 Timothy 4.4. He'd tell us that everything created by God is good. Everything that's broken and fallen apart is not from God. Rather, it's a result of sin. And this is such good news. Because if everything created and done by God is good, like Paul tells Timothy, God cannot abandon us. We can be confident, like David, that God will not abandon our souls. And the point of verse 2 is this. God is the giver of good gifts. All good things come through God. Marriages, relationships, promotions, graduations, children. Where we fall into trouble is when we believe that we are the key factor in good things happening to us. We're so quick to chalk up success to ourselves rather than to God's grace and mercy. And David makes it clear, good things come through God and the favor that he shows us. Verse 3, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The saints in the land in verse 3 refers to the holy people still remaining in Israel. This could be somebody like Jonathan, David's friend whom he confided deeply in and loved, especially in the wake of Saul abandoning David. David still found comfort in Christian friendships in the wake of chaos. Remember, he went from being the king's right-hand man to being number one on his wanted list. But imagine that. When the poop hit the fan, Jonathan did not run away from David. He stood by his side. Do you have Christian friends like that? People who stand by you through life's deepest challenges, through false accusations. Do you have friends who care about the eternal nature of your soul? Or only about how much fun they can have with you this upcoming weekend? I would challenge you that you need authentic Christian friends to survive in this world as a Christian. John Piper would say it like this. Christian friendships exist for this, to say things that keep each other believing. You might hear that quote and say, hmm, you know, thank you, Mr. Piper. That's a, a good word, but how do I get a Christian friendship? How do I delight in the saints of the land like David writes? It takes something that starts with the letter T and ends in I'm. Any guesses? Yeah, time. But beyond time, it takes intentionality. You see, authentic Christian friendships are not something you can order on DoorDash or Amazon Prime. They're cultivated over time. And if you're spiritually hungry for real Christian friends, you probably need to take a moment of introspection and ask yourself, how involved am I with the local church, with the people of God, with the saints of the land? Am I putting myself in intentional situations to make Christian friends? Am I actually a part of a local church? Or am I sneaking in and out before anyone can even shake my hand? Do you prioritize things like Sunday worship, a small group gathering? Or are the 
the, are those the first things that get slashed off your calendar when something you deem more important comes up on the schedule? You may not like these questions. That's probably the Holy Spirit's conviction, but I promise you Christian friendships are cultivated over consistent time spent together with the brothers and sisters in Christ, weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice. They require participation in a local body of believers, the local church, Christ's bride. They don't grow overnight. And you might be thinking right now, Spencer, what about my friends who aren't the verse 3 saints? They aren't the excellent ones David's referring to. They're not Christians. Am I not allowed to delight in them? Here would be my answer. They need you as a friend. Because apart from you, they might not have anyone who's Christian influencing their lives. And God may have ordained you in their lives to minister to them. Let me give you an example. I have a non-Christian friend. I've known him since the day I moved into college in 2017. I've shared the gospel with him multiple times. And yet God has not saved him. Do I just quit on the friendship because he's not a Christian? Because he does not pour into me? Absolutely not. Quite the opposite. Instead, I often pray for him like this. I pray that God may grant him repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that he may come to his senses and escape from the snare of the devil. That's Paul writing to Timothy. Or I'll pray, God, my heart's desire and prayer to God for him is that he may be saved. Paul writing to the Romans. Or, Father, put your spirit within him and cause him to walk in your statutes. Ezekiel. The beautiful thing about those kind of prayers is that they come directly from Scripture. Think about this. When we pray, we should be trying to align our will with God's will. That's what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was praying to his Father and says, Not my will, but yours be done, Lord. We're aligning our wills with God's will. But when we pray scripture, we're praying perfect words. Words that were ordained by God and written down by men. Have you considered that? That this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except Don't neglect the richness of praying scripture for your unsaved friends and family members. And at the same time, be bold, be courageous to share hard gospel truths with them. The closer you draw to God, the more you'll hunger for Christian friendships, for other mature Christians to pour into you. 
I would challenge you, do not neglect that desire and hunger. And if you do not currently have that desire in your heart, I would plead with you right now to pray for that desire. Do not neglect the power and richness of Christian friendships. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. The key word right here is multiply. Multiply what kind of sorrows, though, you ask? Major stumbling blocks that all humans face. Things like sex, porn, alcohol, and money. You might have a different stumbling block. But regardless, they always seem carefree. They're always stress relievers. And they always promise good things at their onset. And you know, when we get Satan involved, he can help us justify just about anything we do. He can help us develop any kind of sinful mindset and justify our actions at the time. He can give us a mindset that says, ah, well, I'm not really watching porn, you know, it's just a little intimate, but, you know, my friends down the street, they watch way more graphic stuff than me. Or someone who says of their partner, we don't really fully have sex, like, we, we keep our clothes on, or at least some of them, like, we're honoring God that way. Or someone who says, you know, I sacrificially give my time every week by volunteering for the church, so I don't need to give any money. I need it for my subscription services and my Starbucks. Or the person who says, it's just a few drinks, plus I do it at home, so I, it's not like I'm anybody seeing me be drunk. David makes it clear. The end result of running after another God is sorrow. Regardless of how enjoyable sin is in the midst of it. And sin almost always is enjoyable because sex, porn, alcohol, and money are all desires of the flesh. And the reality is when we love something else more than God, it will never satisfy us. It can never satisfy our deepest desires in life. Those desires that are not flesh deep, but soul deep. They always leave us wanting more. And if you feel convicted right now, I'd ask you to repent of your sins. To have a conversation with Jesus and resolve. Verse 4 continued. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. David continues by emphasizing the kind of mindset that Christians should develop to refuse to partake in wickedness. 
David refers to drink offerings of blood here. And that might seem out of place. It might be something you've never seen before. But it refers to a passage in Isaiah where people were making human sacrifices of bloodshed to pagan gods. The bottom line is this. David's referring to evil pagan practices. Practices we unfortunately still see in our world today. Practices that are celebrated. But the world's problem is not abortion or murder or homosexuality. The world's problem is sin. The world's problem is it runs after another God. Primarily the God of self-indulgence. The God of self-gratification. And David pleads with us to refuse this kind of lifestyle. To turn to God. And in verse 5, David continues, he says, instead of bowing down to the God of self, he's going to bow down to God. He trusts God with his lot. This could be referring to casting lots, like gambling or a game of chance. We'd see that in Exodus 28.30 or Proverbs 16.33. But I envision that David is saying this with open hands. He's looking up to God in the midst of the chaos and saying, God, I trust you with my life. Every outcome. God, I'm going to live my life the best I can to honor you. You choose the best outcome for me. It's in your hands. The lines that David refers to in verse 6 likely is referring to boundary markers of property. You might say to yourself, what the heck does this have to do with property, Spencer? And that's a good question and something that I struggled with in preparing for this sermon as well. And I think this is what David is saying. God has blessed David richly. And when we think of the term blessed, we're likely to think material, possessions, hashtag blessed, right? David's talking about far more than simply land. He's not preaching a prosperity gospel of health, wealth, and BMW 5 series for everyone who bows the knee to Jesus. David's inheritance and favorable boundary lines is about far more than the fact that he became the king of Israel. What matters for David is that God has shown up at different parts of his life. Times like after Saul, Saul's abandonment of him. And it reminds David, and subsequently it shows us, of the beautiful inheritance we have to come and to look forward to in heaven. David is preaching to himself right now. Reminders of how God's preserved him throughout his chaotic life. And we can be encouraged. Because if you know Jesus, you are not your own. You were bought at a price, according to Paul. And brothers and sisters, that price was the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. And if you are a Christian... Your social standing doesn't matter. Your tax bracket doesn't matter. The car you drive doesn't matter. Because you have a beautiful inheritance. Paid for with Christ's blood. Our, our society divides us by skin color, by socioeconomic status, by the neighborhood we grew up in. But in Christ, it's his blood that unifies us. And that alone 
is a beautiful inheritance. But I couldn't get over the the lot from verse 5. And it made me think of a story, a story that I want to share with you. In 1876, a man named Horatio Spafford was traveling by boat with his family to England. He was joining an evangelist by the name of D.L. Moody for a tour, but he was unable to make the original trip date, so he sent his family ahead on the first boat, his wife and his four daughters. In the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, the ship accidentally collided with another at sea. His wife survived, but all four of his daughters drowned. And a few days later, he received this news by telegram. Some of you in this room have children. And I can imagine that right now, you can vicariously feel the intolerable pain Horatio would have felt. And in the wake of the immense pain, Horatio penned the words of a famous song many of you know. In it, he cries out to God, much like David. And he writes, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, It is well, it is well. With my soul. Are you living your life like Horatio Spafford? Because you can bury your head in the sand, thinking that you're young, thinking that death is far, far away. But the truth is, at some point in your life, both you and people you are near and dear to will die. Parents, siblings, spouses, best friends, Christian, your soul must be prepared for those days because they are coming. You need the same bedrock theology that David had, that Horatio had, They gave their lots to God. Have you done the same? Verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. In verses 7 and 8, David continues to praise God and to give thanks for the kindness God showed him in the wake of his trials. The second half of verse 7 intrigues me when David writes, In the night also my heart instructs me. David is painting a very clear picture that in life we are pulled in two different directions. God gives us counsel and wisdom, and our flesh does at the same time. The prophet Jeremiah would say it like this, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Even as Christians, our fleshly desires still lie to us. 
David makes an honest statement here. He's like, it's true, God influences me, but at the same time, the world does too. And the same is true for us today. Everything the world is trying to sell you and tell you is antithetical to what the Bible teaches. As Christians, worldly pleasures should become less and less desirable every day because they can never satisfy our flesh. Have you considered that? Just like David, your heart will continue to instruct you as long as you live. And this is one reason that we need Christian friendships to cling to. People to call us out on our trash and our garbage in our lives when we are not in line. The excellent ones, like the prophet Nathan, who called David out for his sin after the most sickening and twisted decision he made in his life. After he chose to rape a married woman, kill her husband, and then marry her. By all accounts, this David we have been discussing so far today had his own skeletons in the closet. He was a wicked, evil, twisted person. But the truth of the gospel is this. Regardless of the shameful things of your past, when you open your hands, when you give those things to Christ, when you turn from your sin in repentance, and when you refuse to sacrifice to whatever present-day pagan God you are worshiping today, God promises to put away your sin. And you might say, Spencer, that sounds way too good to be true. That sounds like a timeshare pitch. Don't believe me? Look at David and Nathan's dialogue in 2 Samuel 12. Nathan speaks first. David, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? David's response, I would imagine in a heart of penitence, I have sinned against the Lord. Probably followed by a lot of tears and prayers and true penitence. Nathan's response back, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Wow. Brothers and sisters, if you have refused to bow the knee to Jesus because you think he could never forgive whatever you've done, know this. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just and will forgive your sin and will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's the power of the gospel. It's that God casts your sin as far as the east is from the west. Infinity. If you're a Christian and God has saved you, this is a good truth. This is a treasured truth. But if you're not a Christian, I would plead with you to have a conversation with Jesus today. Because he is the way and the truth and the life. And his path is the one to follow. Bow your knee to him. Surrender your life to him because God has promised to not abandon your soul. Let's close this out. Verse 9. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. By the time David pens this psalm, he has been alive long enough to know that life is fragile and short. He has stared death in the eye many times. 
And I may be wrong, but I would imagine that few people in this room have had spears thrown at them, had kings trying to kill them. But, but I could be wrong. The point is this. David is so confident in God being by his side that he knows God will not abandon his soul. Because God has promised to protect his soul, David does not have to guard himself in the same way that someone would who did not know their eternal fate. David can live life without regrets. You might have caught in verse 10 the word shale. They might say, that's a weird word. I haven't heard that one before. The Old Testament describes shale as the place of the dead. It's a place ruled by Satan, and the Bible depicts it as a wilderness. But beyond that, the Bible doesn't give a lot more information about Sheol. And going farther would be speculation in a sense. But think about this. The Israelites did not have the revelations of heaven like Christians have today from John the Evangelist's revelation of heaven, i.e. the last book of the Bible. The key point, though, is that God is still ultimately king over Sheol because God will not abandon us even after death. That's incredibly good news because we can logically say that if God will not abandon David, a sinful, wicked human being, God will not abandon us. Verse 11, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The path of life. David does not say the many paths of life or the eightfold path of life. He says the path of life. In other words, if we are to avoid the corruption that David mentioned in verse 10, we have to be on God's path. And Jesus corroborates this. John 14, 6, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Are you walking the path of life? That in itself is the question of the day. Because David goes on to say that in God's presence is where our joy is full. When you choose his path of life, not yours. Now, my joy is pretty full every day, thanks to my wife, Kayla Joy. But David is talking about a joy that does not run out. A joy that doesn't stop when your electrical system fails, or your car breaks down on the side of the road, or some other major calamity happens. David is saying that true pleasure and excitement cannot be matched on earth to what is in store for us in heaven. Because the verse says that at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. And while David wrote this before Christ's arrival on earth, we know that Jesus is at God's right hand interceding for us while Satan is accusing us. Because on earth we still run into things like abandonment. And I would imagine that David wrote Psalm 16 to directly combat his frustration, his sadness, his despair about abandonment. And furthermore, this psalm personally encourages me. Because abandonment is a word that stings in my heart. It's a nasty word in my family. And maybe the same is true in yours. 
I had the privilege to spend three years of my childhood in Nairobi, Kenya, a country in East Africa, while my dad served in the U.S. Air Force. And I got to witness firsthand the dirty, raw truth of abandonment. Take a trip with me for a minute in your mind. You see, many women in Kenya end up pregnant unexpectedly because of immense poverty. These women are impregnated by usually somebody they know, a friend, a friend of the family, or in some cases of family member themselves. And since Kenya is somewhat of a traditional society, it's incredibly appropriate for a woman, it's incredibly inappropriate for a woman to get pregnant outside of wedlock. And they're the ones usually blamed for it. And they're shamed by their families. On top of that, most women in Kenya, if they work, an unskilled job can make about $2 a day. And they live in slums with limited running water and electricity. And often live in dirt huts. So that's the frame of reference you're stepping into right now. So if you find out you're pregnant and for some reason choose to not commit a dangerous at-home or backdoor abortion, you will give birth to your child. But you won't know what to do with the boy or girl afterwards. Children I've known in Kenya were left after birth in outdoor toilets. Pit latrines in the ground. Like where you go to the bathroom! Or in the case of my youngest brother, who we adopted while living in Kenya, left at a hospital door. He has no record of his birth mother, no way to find her, no way to meet her. No way to look her in the eye, face to face, and say, why me? His whole life, he struggled with abandonment. And this story might be bringing up pain or wounds in your heart right now. Maybe you were not abandoned at birth, but emotionally abandoned in your childhood. Your parents, if you were lucky to have two, both were checked out. Or maybe it was a relationship, a friend, a partner, a spouse just up and walked out on you one day. No explanation. And here's the truth why abandonment hurts so bad. It's because God has hardwired each of us 
to yearn for, to hunger for connectedness, to desire love. Our souls were not created to be abandoned. Yet for some of you, neglect and abandonment is all you've ever known. Christian, there is hope. Despite the painful reality of abandonment, we can rest assured on the deep theology truths of first love. The truth that people can abandon our bodies, but God will not abandon our souls to the end. And the truth is, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well. God, we're grateful for these truths. God, I know there's people in this room that are hurting, whose souls are burdened. But God, you promise not to abandon us. Surround us with people who remind us these truths when we need to hear them. God, I pray that today that the words I've spoken will not fall void on the ears that have heard them. In your name.